Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Today, we had the honor of welcoming John Lancaster onto our show. He was a second lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps. He commanded a combat infantry platoon in Vietnam where he earned a Purple Heart and Bronze Star in 1968. John retired as the executive director of the National Council on Independent Living, also known as NICL. NICL is the oldest disability grassroots organization run by and for people with disabilities. NICL advances the independent living philosophy and advocates for the full integration and participation of people with disability in society. John also served as the treasurer of the Board of Trustees for Humanity and Inclusion. Additionally, he served as a board of the United States International Council on Disabilities, also known as USID, as past president. John also served on the board of the Global Universal Design Commission and the Potsdam New York Humane Society. So a very rich career. John Lancaster, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you very much, Ming. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. So we're going to kick off with our first question. So I know that you became a paraplegic resulting from a single AK-47 around piercing your lungs and hitting your spinal column while you were serving in Vietnam. Can you share with us the impact your injury has had on your life immediately after it happened? Immediately after it happened. Well, it was, uh, I almost died there in the battlefield for lack of uh, uh, a better word. I survived, did triage and spent some time off the coast of Vietnam on a hospital ship, the USS Repose. Uh, was eventually medevaced by a Da Nang and um, Guam and San Francisco and Illinois and over Air Force Base uh, back to St. Albans Naval Hospital on Long Island and uh, did uh, initial healing and rehab there for about uh, three months. And that whole getting uh, to St. Albans took one month. So about three months into it then, then I was shipped to the spinal cord injury center at the VA Cleveland, uh, hospital in the VA hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. And there I did about eight months of, uh, physical, all kinds of rehab for my spinal cord injury and was discharged in February of 1969. Uh, went home to my parents' house, and they had done some incredible things to make it accessible for me and were tremendous support and quickly learned how inaccessible and difficult my world was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm back, sure. Back then, you couldn't get on a bus 
couldn't get in and out of buildings. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know? Yeah, which leads me to the next question, actually, John, is what was the hardest part about transitioning from being an able-bodied person to someone with a disability and using a wheelchair all of a sudden? Yeah, a lot of frustration, uh, a lot of anger, a lot of depression. And that was also related to the whole scene in Vietnam because uh, the night I was hit and got wounded, I also uh, lost four guys in my uh, platoon. They were killed. So not to mention all the Vietnamese that were killed and the 18 in my platoon that were seriously wounded. And we have no idea how many enemy were wounded. We have a good idea how many were dead, but not how many were wounded. So have guys you're responsible for killed or to kill other people. It's just nasty business. So it took a while to get over that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. Understandably. What do you wish you would have known when you first became injured that you know now about living as a person with a disability, being in a wheelchair? The biggest thing I wish I had known was the importance of physical fitness and learning how to stay there without overdoing it so that when you get to be my age, your shoulders still work. <laughs> and, and you aren't looking total shoulder replacement surgery. So, so if I, if I could look back and say any one thing right now, since, uh, that's been a difficulty and a consideration that I never would have thought of related to disability, that would be it. Staying fit, staying light, not too heavy, staying active, healthy, and not wearing out too fast (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah because the rest of it's been a great life i mean a lot of ups and downs and it was uh at first tough to realize that it could be so great but it has been and the whole experience of vietnam and my disability ultimately defined my career and fantastic career it's been. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate just a little bit on the conserving your energy and not straining your shoulders? Because obviously we all want to live a active, fulfilling, productive life. But what does that look like when we're trying to really balance it, you know, in the whole large span of life? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think, I think, frankly, even able-bodied people haven't figured that out. You know, people who were athletic, whether they're professionally athletic or just athletic and fit, you know, to go along with whatever their day job is. But um, I don't think uh, human beings have totally figured it out, but it's even a bigger challenge uh, for other disabilities, too. And uh, so what does it look like? I would say is a better understanding of what your new way of moving, so to speak, is like I use a wheelchair. So when you're in the wheelchair, you're, you know, you're pushing and that's 
a lot of use on the hands, the elbows, the shoulders, you know, the back muscles and probably your pectoral and a few other things. So you want to use them. You want to keep them in really good shape. But you also got to understand that sooner or later, cartilage, tendons start to get older and more brittle. And so there becomes a whole question of everything from diet to, I'd say, pacing yourself at the at the at the right pace so that you don't do damage and that's also hard for someone who has an active lifestyle like you and like i used to because my wife christine and i we we've literally traveled many places in the world long before there was good access <laughs> so you'd put yourself in impossible places in impossible bathrooms. For example, when uh, you have to, you know, use the toilet in a way that you're definitely sitting on it and you're someplace in, say, Southeast Asia and you cannot stand or walk at all and the only toilet is a, a hole in the ground then you have to start figuring out some adaptations pretty quick. <laughs> so, um, and then what's that take in terms of your musculature to get yourself in that position? Or when you go into some impossible hotel in some place, or is now often the case in many hotels, even in this country, and you look at the bed, and the bed's up about almost even with your shoulders. And you're saying, how the heck am I going to get up into this thing? <laughs> you know, so you, you start to, um, you start to use your muscles in a way that might be putting undue strain on them to make do in the situation you're in and can even do uh, damage. Uh, especially if your tendons and ligaments and things are starting to get brittle or mm -hmm. supplements. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a great point. I've found myself in some horrendous toilets, as you probably have as well, having traveled as much as you know you have. So moving on to disability advocacy now, you've devoted your whole life to this. I, uh, I got a chuckle out of this when you were, you know, as you were clerking for the Board of Veterans Appeals and in the beginning of your career and you were recollected in one article, you said, one day Judy Human and Jim May came down the long gray hallway. They barged into the office and said, we heard you have a law degree and use a wheelchair. We need you. I said, how do you know I'm any good? They said, we don't care. Come on. So my question is, how has Judy Human and other disability advocates shaped your career in terms of advocating for individuals with disabilities? Mm -hmm. uh, huge, huge, in a huge way. After the Marine Corps, I went uh, back to school and I went back to my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame initially to work on a PhD in philosophy, but then I got scared. What am I going to do with that when I graduate? get my PhD, you know, <laughs> not many jobs for philosophers. So uh, I jumped to the law school. And interestingly enough, two people 
Marcia and Bob Bergdorf, who were married at the time. And Bob Bergdorf's uh, been a, you know, a real lion in the disability movement too, were the first two advocates I ever met uh, for disability issues. And they were both um, teaching at the law school or Marcia was and Bob had just finished graduating from the law school and they had just gotten married. And they were teaching a course called Law and the Handicapped at the time. And so they were the first people I met. And then I started to look at the relationship between my law school education and disability issues. But I really didn't think much about it. Then the only job I could get was the one you mentioned at the, the Veterans Administration's Board of Veterans Appeals. And that did happen where where Judy Human and Jim May came in and, and you just don't say no to Judy. You know, you just can't say no to Judy. So they took me to lunch. And two weeks later, I was working for the guy Jim May at the Paralyzed Veterans of America because Judy wanted me there so the PVA would do advocacy on transportation issues for people with disabilities, access to mass transit with the what was then called the Subcommittee on the Handicap of, I think it was Transportation and Service Committee or something, or uh, anyways, it was the committee that had jurisdiction over transportation. It was headed by Senator Harrison Williams of New Jersey, and Judy was working for him. And so Judy and I became close friends, and I've known her and worked with her for respect. She's yeah. done great stuff, but um, she pulled me kind of kicking and dragging a little bit right into the disability movement. <laughs> and so it was great. It was just great. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like she's had a, you know, had yeah. a huge impact on your life, not only, you know, professionally, but also personally. Yeah. Yeah. Her and her husband, Jorge, are great people. <laughs> yeah, they are. I've had the opportunity to meet them as well. So you once said that we need a paradigm shift when it comes to employment for individuals with disabilities. What do we need to shift to? And how can we create this paradigm shift? And what can current leaders do to achieve this paradigm shift? Yeah, I, I think the more the disability community can continue to push issues and the identity of people with disabilities to the forefront in the sense of inclusion and to the background in the sense of the differences. And I don't think we've quite achieved the balance yet because we haven't been able to educate the public so that the public really gets it and accepts it that affirmative action supports accommodations accessibility these are all about inclusion and equaling or at least balancing out a little bit the playing field of being in life and participating and contributing. And we haven't yet found 
out how to sell that to the entire masses in a way that everybody gets it. A lot of people are starting to get it, and I think we've made vast progress in that area. And I think that the more we stay in communication with and working with other civil rights efforts, whether it's the women's movement or African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and the more we move towards an inclusive uh, society, uh, then I think the quicker we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I agree with you. Then there definitely needs to be a paradigm shift with 70% of individuals with disabilities today still being unemployed. That's outrageous. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> that was one of the issues I spent a lot of my career working on was the employment of people with disabilities. And again, that's where the point I was just making is really shows up is in the area of employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So you once said, I also believe that we need to do advocacy with our entire society, advocacy that goes beyond Congress. When we turn down funding from corporations or organizations we disagree with, we miss out on this opportunity. What did you mean by this? Can you elaborate this further? And how do you think this will advance the rights and opportunities for people with disabilities? I think is what we need is a massive kind of PR campaign. And I think it needs to be less centered around Paralympic athletes and, you know, the successful actor or actress that happens to have a disability too, and more about around or ordinary Joes and Susies like us, you know, that are just out there doing life, you know, and that aren't, you know, next necessarily the, uh, the, uh, I hate to be disparaging of my own group, but and myself, but of the so-called super crypt that might've just won the downhill Olympic skiing thing in their class. I think we need to create more understanding in the general society of what people with disabilities sometimes have to go through to make it through a day and what a difference it makes to have a reason for doing that, like a job, <laughs> you know, like some independence, like recreation, like, you know, the, to be able to have a life, uh, then it's worth it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's worth getting through that day. So, and I, I so I think uh, to put it another way, we need a uh, a massive PR campaign. Yeah, no, I agree with you. In terms of there's a limit limited when you think of people with disabilities in the mainstream media. You know, you do think of Paralympics and you think of actors and and really trying to shift that into internalizing and realizing that. The socially constructed ways of the past isn't accurate and, you know, really need to thinking about that. It's an alternative way of living and, and that's simply what it is. But the society, the socially constructed infrastructure thinking isn't conducive, isn't healthy for our current dis disabled population. Yes. Or any group of population that's not seen as the, the, the majority. 
So moving on to the CRPD, which you've done a lot of work and a lot of advocacy in. So one of the reasons that you think the U.S. should ratify the CRPD, for listeners who are not familiar, that's the UN Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, is that so one of the reasons that you advocated for the U.S. to ratify, which the U.S. still hasn't, is, for one, this is quoting you now, for one, I believe that U.S. participation on treaty implementation will yield even more progress and uh, will offer the expertise and technical knowledge that many of these countries do not have in the area of disability rights. So my question is, how do you think the U.S. ratifying the CRPD will help offer expertise and technical knowledge to other countries who are not as advanced in the disability rights field? Well, I think start with um, people need to understand that we already are. Uh, but I don't think it extends in again into the mainstream. Uh, USAID and State Department have done some good things um, in terms of providing that level of assistance. Uh, to people with disabilities. They fund a lot of good programs. A board that um, I used to be on of uh, HI, it used to be called uh, Handicapped International. Now it's called Humanity and Inclusion. And uh, HI, for example, gets USAID support uh, and uh, Western European support for uh, doing programs like inclusive education uh, for children with disabilities, uh, like uh, fairness in healthcare and HIV AIDS uh, treatment uh, for people with disabilities. Um, they've uh, done, done things in terms of employment generation. Those types of things are the things we need to be exporting to the nations of a lot of the developing world, and uh, in some cases, even to the developed world. And that is an area where I think uh, the United States has been a leader and can continue to be a leader and ought to be a leader. That's what this country's about is is rights and fairness and inclusion and you know uh, letting everybody participate and everybody take their own personal responsibility and do their part to pull on the national and international war so to speak and um so the fact that our senate cannot ratify what barack obama signed the convention on on uh, you know people with disabilities yeah yep and the fact that he cannot the senate cannot um ratify it i i think is a a very shameful comment about a lot of folks in our country who are unwilling to say that yeah, we believe in this and we believe in it the way we do other human rights. And 
you know, the free enterprise system and all the other things that we supposedly believe in. And, you know, their, their excuses for not doing it just don't, you know, don't measure up. They're meaningless, really. No, I totally agree with you. It's very disappointing. We got to extend that philosophy, though, not just to the Convention on Rights of People with Disabilities, but it needs to be uh, extended into our economic policies abroad, our broader ones, not just the ones that are aimed at people with disabilities, but trade agreements into, you know, all this stuff. It's got to become part of the fabric of our foreign policy and our foreign commerce for mm-hmm. us to properly export that. And uh, and I just don't know um, quite how to get there. <laughs> so as you wrote, so maybe this question is, is not quite yet, um, but as you wrote, ratifying the CRPD costs nothing, will require no changes in law, and provides us the leadership opportunity to effectively guide a framework for countries to advance and sustain disabilities, disability rights in their own country. And yet, uh, unquote now, and yet the U.S. still has not ratified the CRPD. So why do you think the U.S. still has not ratified it? And what can current generations do to propel that forward? Yeah, I think um, maintain the activism and we need to bring the issue uh, forward again. Uh, it is a slightly new Senate. Make them, make them vote again and make them keep voting until they ratify it. So I think we need to ramp up the advocacy, uh, number one. And number two, I think we, we need to say, hey, the, you know, we're citizens here too. We vote too. And we think this is something that our country should be proud of disability rights and that should be exporting in all of our policies. Mm-hmm. Just a follow-up question on that is, why do you believe so strongly that we should sign on to it, even though, you know, as you were, as I was quote, quoting you earlier, there are no law changes and no costs and mm-hmm. those things involved? Yep, well... Because number one, I don't think we're a selfish, selfish nation, and we've got some good things going here. But believe me, started here would be a better word. We're far from done. We've got a long way to go ourselves. But we have so much we can teach other parts of the world too. And why be selfish? Number one, you know, it's uh, like Buckminster Fuller used to say. Um, we live on spaceship Earth and everybody down here is crew. People got to start participating and to participate, you have to make some accommodations. You have to do some accessibility. Uh, you have to do some education. You have to make sure people have economic opportunity. And that's what I like to think this country's been about. And why we shouldn't be promoting that is beyond me. I definitely understand its importance. And I think you're right, putting it up to a vote again and, you know, bringing it up again. Um, hopefully, you know, the results will be different given the 
change in mindset. So moving on to collaborating, you know, with other countries, bilateral, multilateral collaborations, you served as a representative for disability employment policy in discussions between the European Union and the United States under the new transatlantic agenda. So from 2004, from 2000 to 2004, um, you served as a policy advisor to the Vietnamese government to develop disability law policy and programs in Vietnam. And then as executive director of NICL, you led uh, NICL in forming their international committee to advancing the independent living philosophy for worldwide. And then, you know, you served on the board of the U.S. International Council on Disabilities. And, and you ex assisted in advocating for the ratification and implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which we talked about just a little bit earlier. And you've also been involved on the international front, working with the disabled organizations and governments worldwide. So my question with that long summary of just some of your co amazing career is, what is the key to collaborating and working with such a wide network and such a diverse group of people in pushing these agendas for in pushing the disability rights issues forward? The main thing for me is communication. Number one, being a really good listener and observer and seeing what the situation and the concerns are. Um, of the other folks involved, you know, and whether you're uh, pushing an agenda and having to do some advocacy or whether you're uh, coming to a meeting of the minds with say another group of disabled people in, for example, Vietnam, which you mentioned. And when I was over there working with the government, um, uh, Interestingly enough, I was on a USAID, I was being paid through a USAID grant by a US nonprofit called uh, Vietnam Assistance uh, for the Handicap was her name, VNAH. And, um, but who I answered to was the Vietnamese government. So it was kind of a, you know, it, you had different bosses and different sources. But anyways, the, the key thing there is when I started working with my disabled colleagues, um, my counterparts that were Vietnamese, especially in Hanoi and, and Ho Chi Minh City and in certain other larger cities, as well as uh, some more rural provinces too. And we, we were effective in forming good uh, networks of uh, people with disabilities that were starting to get into the into the conversation. And I used to try and communicate how we do things here in the United States, uh, not only in the sense of our vast wealth and materialism and construction and all the stuff, but uh, in terms of our laws and all that. And at the same time, I had to listen very closely to them and understand their culture, their situation, and do the observations. And we used to have some extremely good conversations. 
And the type of advocacy that always works here doesn't necessarily work in Hanoi. You know, it's a different, it's a different culture. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of doing things. Um, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be advocacy. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be um, push and give and take. Uh, but the way that you accomplish that might be very different. So I, I think to me, working with all of those diverse groups really was a question of listening, observation, communication, discussion, and coming to a shared consensus that, that would move the action forward. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate just a little further on what advocacy looks like in Vietnam and how that differs from advocacy here in the U.S.? Yes, uh, and I think it's still the case today, uh, at least to some extent and on some issues. But in the U.S., you know, we're quick, for example, to make a political point when we're not, when we're not, uh, how do I want to say when we're not getting anywhere through? So I, you know, it's a, a little harder to do a uh, kind of an angry protest demonstration in, uh, in Hanoi, or certainly it was at the time, uh, say, than it would be for us to uh, be doing something like blocking traffic or uh, holding a big rally or, uh, you know, doing something uh, like that uh, in downtown Hanoi in front of one of the uh, government uh, buildings. But that being said, the Vietnamese have their own way of kind of making those same points that, that were, I thought, uh, equally effective. So it, it's um, an example of that would be is a, they like events, in parks and if they can get the right people there invite them and get them to say something uh, put them on record saying the right thing you know it's a it's almost i mean we do some of that here that too but the their way of doing it is um, a little more subtle <laughs> and uh and but it it has a way of uh uh, producing results, maybe not always as fast, but uh, moving the action forward. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. one example. So what are your views on how the different disability rights collisions collaborate together in the U.S.? And if if relevant, what can be improved in, term, in terms of cohesiveness, establishing a unified agenda between the different coalitions? I actually think it's extremely important. We never would have gotten the ADA without that, the Americans with Disabilities Act, without that level of cooperation and coordination and coming together of the disability community, including parents of uh, children with disabilities. It just wouldn't have happened. We would not have had the political ability to have gotten it done. And, and we also built coalitions, uh, coalitions in doing so across civil rights lines. Uh, we had um, some unions of 
supporting uh, the ADA. We had uh, various civil rights organizations supporting it. Uh, besides the disability groups, we had uh, uh, veterans organizations supporting it. You know, you, it, the more you can build that collective joint will and common vision, uh, you know, the more likelihood you're going to get it to happen. So uh, to my mind, it's essential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you think of the current um, disability coalitions and, you know, the the current movement and organizations are seeking to to push the issues forward? Let me say this. I, I'm a little out of touch with what's going on in Washington and the state capitals these days, uh, being an old retired guy. But I live in Potsdam, New York. We're a very rural community in a small village with two small universities, Clarkson University and SUNY Potsdam in very northern New York as crow flies about 15 miles off the Canadian border at the St. Lawrence River, or 20 miles maybe. The disability rights movement is virtually non-existent up here. People follow accessibility laws and there's a little bit of hiring going on that in the old days never would have gone on. And people are more out in society and that's a good thing. But in terms of general news, except for an occasional spot on national public radio or something, we have not a clue what's going on in the disability movement in, except through the internet. So the, to the extent that you're hooked into maybe a show like yours or email, which I know a lot of people are, you're not, you know, you're just not that I don't think the movement has gotten to the point so that in most cases when their representative is home at vacation time or when they take a recess or when their senator is visiting their area up there, that they're up there in the crowd at a town hall raising their hand and asking, what are you doing about ratifying the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities? What are you doing about whatever the issue is? You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you might, you might see the union guy there or the person that's concerned about an environmental issue, but rarely do you see someone saying, you know, what are you doing about making sure everybody has supports in the home if that's what they need. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really important point. I think I think that should also be a call to action for current individuals with disabilities as well who, you know, don't realize perhaps the history and how, how hard that your generation worked and um, to make everything as accessible as it is now, even though we have miles to go, but we have gone a long ways in achieving a lot of things as well. And because of because of your generation and the work, you and Judy Human and, and many, many others, Ed Roberts. Um, so you once wrote that, switching the subject just a little bit, going back to Vietnam, 
You once wrote that in 1968, as a young Marine, I was medevaxed from Vietnam with a spinal cord injury received in combat. In August 1996, I returned to Vietnam as an official in the Clinton administration. So what I'm curious about is how was going back to Vietnam all those years, despite, you know, such a tremendous injury that incurred while you were there last? The first time I went back was very emotional. My my wife, Christine, and I went back as a result of a man by the name of Chan Van Ka, uh, who came into my office, uh, actually a colleague of mine at the pre- old President's Committee on Employment of People with Disabilities. Paul Hippolytus brought um, this Chan Van Ka into my office and he said, I want your agency to work with me uh, over in uh, Hanoi. And I was like, well, wait a minute here, you know. And at the time, it was very sensitive politically because uh, the U.S. government had just, this was actually late 95, but the U.S. government had just ratified political relationships, normalized relationships with um, Hanoi. Uh, An amazing journey for me uh, because Vietnam, kind of the word and the meaning to me, changed from a war to a culture of people, a great nation, um, a lot of friends, a job, and it no longer was about the war. It was about this great culture that I finally got exposed to and people, wonderful people, good friends. Yeah, I, I think in in some aspects, it must have felt like the word that comes to mind, no, is not, is um, reconciliation, did you? Yeah, in, yeah, I never, I never felt like I was doing conciliation work. I felt like I was uh, working with people to advance the rights of people with disabilities. I I didn't see it as building relations between the two countries. I know it was. And frankly, I never witnessed any overt hostility or resentment from any Vietnamese because I was, you know, a ex-U.S. Marine or once a Marine, always a Marine, but a U.S. Marine who had fought over there. In fact, one of my best friends in in Hanoi was uh, Mang Tuan, and uh, uh, Tuan and I uh, um, were the same age, both had spinal cord injuries at the level of T5, 6, and were wheelchair riders. Um, both had fought in the Wei Fubai area in uh, Vietnam. And uh, he, he was a, a leader in the disability movement over there, and particularly among disabled veterans. And he and his wife, uh, uh, lived in the old quarter and ran a Chinese medicine shop. A very successful one. 
So he was an example of a, uh, a Vietnamese soldier from Hanoi who had fought against uh, Americans and we became really good friends. Great. Mm -hmm. You know, beautiful story. So now we come to our last question. Um, we've taken up way too much of your time than I thought. Last question is something to think about, to chew on for the future. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing individuals with disabilities as a whole today, you know, both domestically and internationally? How can we go overcome these challenges as a group going into the future? Um, the biggest challenge is the current state of economic inequality here and abroad. One thing, uh, in my opinion, is that discrimination against any group of people lessens, at least, doesn't necessarily go away, but lessens a lot if uh, the minority group member uh, has a lot of money in their pocket and is successful. And, uh, and people with disabilities, except on rare occasions, um, are not going to get to that level unless we have true ec economic equality and the ability to get decent jobs and to work our way up in the, you know, the economic ladder, so to speak, and to share in the opportunities that are available um, when you have um, resources, financial resources, the ability to travel, uh, the ability to go get further education and learn something new, to learn about art, to participate in sports, uh, to do a variety of things. So um, I'd say that's the biggest challenge going forward. The, the other point, what can we do about it? We got to keep up the advocacy, but not just with government. We got to start advocating with corporations. We got to start playing hardball with everything from hotels um, to local educational institutions to um, and we're doing some of that. I'm not saying none of it's going on, but, you know, we need to, I think, ramp it up a little bit. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, or a lot, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, as I was saying earlier, I think your practical advice and your very, because you're talking about observations earlier and just observing the realities of life and, you know, how powerful having that economic freedom could be yeah. rather that be pushing an, an issue forward or just you know personal independence it's it's all very important and uh, and uh, a, a reality that we need to internalize and then do something about that after we internalize it and you know despite the despite the barriers that are in front of us. Thank you so much, John, for coming on to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. We've had such a rich conversation with you today. So thank you. Thank you, Ming. And it's been a pleasure to be with you and to, and to do this interview. Thank you. I only know 
what it's like in America And shutting doors, I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy. Worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgow podcast at gmail dot com. Let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel. How do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries? What language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability? We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the contact us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye bye.